everyone. Welcome back to Reality 2.0. I'm Catherine Druckman. Doc is vacationing somewhere very cool, so will not be joining us today. But we also today have Kyle Rankin, who you know, he is president at Purism, a company that makes really cool privacy respecting hardware that you need to check out. And we have Dave Hughesby. Dave is now part of Cryptid Tech. Okay. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, no, good. Okay. CEO. <laughs> having... Co-founder yeah. and CEO. Cool, fun, new uh, project that he's working on. We've had Dave on the show a few times before, and Dave always brings his big ideas, and we appreciate that, and we're going to explore one of them. But most recently, in particular, he has written something of a love letter to Elon Musk, and you might wonder what I mean by that. And so, so to find out, I encourage you to stick around, because we're going to talk about some interesting concepts around pseudonymity and maybe a little social media as it is topical right now and individual digital sovereignty and freedom and liberty and history and it's going to be great. So with that, Dave, can you tell us a little bit more about this love letter to Elon Musk? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sure. (laughs) Um, I guess uh, it's a blog post and I'm sure there'll be a link associated with this um, show when it drops. The point of the article was to try to bring some sanity around the debate of authenticating real humans while preserving some degree of anonymity or privacy. And the reason we, and you used the term pseudonymity earlier um, in the open. And I think that's actually the the correct term to use. Um, and, And the reason there's, there's, legal reasons for this and there's also moral reasons and but the difference between anonymity and pseudonymity is really anonymity you have no name and there's no way for for you to ever be discovered of who you are Um, and it also means that you can never accurately prove that you were the author of that as well Um, and so anonymity is kind of out. I know that like Elon used the term anonymity, but I think what he really meant was pseudonymity. And there's been a, a lot of back and forth and a lot of hair pulling and a lot of screaming about, you know, Twitter can't possibly provide any kind of privacy. You have to be who you are, your real name and all that stuff. But at that point, if you do that, you can't really speak your mind, right? And so the, the article opens up and this is why it's kind of a love letter because I know that he likes really interesting historical tidbits and, you know, he's a bit of a history nerd. Um, And there was something I discovered, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago when cryptography started to come into question again, you know, 10, 15 years after the first crypto wars. I discovered that James Madison wrote a letter to Thomas Jefferson in 1788 head of the first session of Congress discussing the creation of the Bill of Rights, how James Madison wants the Bill of Rights to be structured, and what are the topics that are going to be addressed, and who who were political shakers, movers and shakers in early America, were going to be brought on board uh, with this uh, federalist idea of we need to have a central government and a constitution and all that stuff. And um, what's interesting about this letter is it's encrypted, at least in part. It uses a cipher that Thomas Jefferson invented. 
And I just think it is so perfectly American that two of the framers of our constitution discussing one of the most important parts of our constitution used technology to ensure privacy and confidentiality so that they could speak freely about it. The parts that are, that are encrypted in the letter are James Madison's opinions of other people. You know, he discusses like, oh, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that. And then he encrypts like, I think that guy's kind of a jerk. And I think their, their point of view is, is irrelevant. And, you know, and, and so his own personal political opinions were the things that he encrypted to Thomas Jefferson. Um, and he, he, there's a bit of a timeline here. Okay, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'll wrap up the history lesson here real quick, but there's a timeline here that's really also important to Twitter. Um, so that was in 1788, but way, way back in 1724, I think, or 1722. So like a full 60 years prior. Okay, now those of us of a certain age who can remember 1988, imagine being in 1988 and thinking back to 1924. That seems like, you know, black and white history. Like that was a long time. So there is a long time between 1720s and 1788. Back in the 1720s, Benjamin Franklin, as a teenager, started writing letters that were published in their public newspaper there, or his brother's newspaper in Philadelphia, as Mrs. Silence Duguid. So this is like the classic, you know, cartoon, right? On the internet, nobody knows your dog. Well, apparently in 1720s Philadelphia, if you published on, in the newspaper, nobody would know that you're not an elderly widow. <laughs> that you, they wouldn't know that you were a teenage uh, boy. Um, anyway, he started writing these letters in the 1720s and then all through the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s, as we got closer and closer and closer to the revolution, um, Benjamin Franklin continued to write publicly under false names, right? He published um, a political pamphlet that, to raise a militia to defend the city of Philadelphia against privateers called Plain Truth. And he published that as a tradesman of Philadelphia, right? And then of course he wrote a poor Richard's Almanac, you know, Richard was a made up character, right? But that was him. And as we got closer to the, to, or after the revolution, as we were arguing for the constitution, others picked up on this too that you know you had john jay and james madison and alexander hamilton all publishing you know the the paper the federalist papers under publius right so this was a proud tradition and a very common thing to do to i mean pardon my language but the modern equivalent is shit posting on twitter they were writing rabble rousing somewhat treasonous somewhat offensive somewhat thought-provoking and, and very often humorous political speech, hardcore political speech as, under, well, under a false name, right? In a public space with, that was read by tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, right? So the reason the history is important here is because this establishes, I mean, if you are at all a traditionalist, and believe that there is an American tradition and that we should at least understand it and pay attention to it. This, is, this establishes the root of that tradition that technology has always been used in this country to aid in our discussion about politics and our zeitgeist and all that stuff. 
And more importantly, pseudonymous speech, publishing under pen names and being edgy and calling for revolution and calling for a, a whole new constitution when we had just you know, we had just become a country and we already had articles of confederation, but then everybody's like, no, 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 that sucks. And they're like, wait, 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 we have a country. What are you talking about? We have to redo the country. Was this just a beta? Or are we going to now like reboot the whole country? And, and everybody's like, yeah, well, not everybody, a few key people, Alexander Hamilton, you know, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, all those started arguing for this federalist constitution. And they did it under, under pendings. And for good reason, because back then, um, nobody really had any loyalty to any central government. They, they had loyalty to their state. They had just fought a revolution, they, which was still tenuous. People thought, you know, oh, in 10 years, maybe we'll just go back to being British colony again, or, or we'll, we're just renegotiating with the British crown, you know, like we're going to get our new terms and we'll still be part of the, the, you know, the empire. Um, and the, with the creation of the constitution, that was basically closing that off. And there were a lot of loyalists that were still in the colonies or still in the fledgling United States. And so there was serious risk to themselves personally, financially, politically, if they were publishing under their real names. So there was a 18th century equivalent of being canceled, just like we have today. Like literally this has not changed. This is how it's always been. Were they, People look were at they Twitter. exposed? Assuming they're exposed. You know. Exactly. Right. And everybody looks at Twitter thinking like this is a modern thing. And it is to a de certain degree in the sense that it's our current version of the newspaper and the pamphleteering and the meme posting back in the 18th century. And then all the muckraking, you know, in the early 19th, you know, in the 20th century and then in the 19th century, right? All the muckraking in the late 19th century. I mean, any student of history, American history knows that that our First Amendment and our, our free speech rights have, um, have always protected wild political uh, arguments. And so anyway, that's the basis of this. So people today who are arguing that Twitter should not allow the full spectrum of political speech um, on the platform are actually running contrary to American uh, tradition. And this history, clearly shows that to be true. And then the other piece, like I said, the technology, using technology to, to support that and to enforce it, the use of cryptography and the printing press, um, that is also key to the American tradition. So when they wrote the First Amendment, they wrote the Fourth Amendment, the use of technology to enforce those rights against the government was always assumed, right? Because they actually used it. The, the people who literally wrote the Constitution used encryption and anonymous shitposting in the public. So to say that today is any different is, is um, to lie about history, right? Sure, we have technology, but we should be aiming for having a robust and honest debate that respects people's privacy. Um, you, know, you hear people say like, oh, your free speech rights doesn't mean you, you're free from consequences. That may be true, but I should also be able to publish under a false name and then be somewhat free from consequences. Um, but then, you know, you get the pushback where it's like, well, then everything on Twitter is going to be like, you know, illegal content, whatever, you know, like stuff that we have deemed illegal for various reasons, you know, like 
content of, of people being harmed. Let's just put it like that, right? Um, and, or like direct threats, actionable direct threats to people, right? That, that's something that has been carved out as an exception. I think it's important to point out that exceptions to the First Amendment have happened roughly once every hundred years. So that's the rate in which our society has accepted restrictions and they've been very narrow in scope, right? So anyway, that's how I opened it. Something very interesting, hoping to catch its attention. But then the rest of it is to discuss this project, the, this research project that has turned into a company that we've talked about before um, on here. It, this started about three years ago um, and it's been a stealth mode company until just recently. We just came out of stealth about a week ago, two weeks ago. And it comes out of 20 years of my personal research. Um, I, I have a long career in security and privacy research. I worked at Mozilla as a security engineer and studied uh, surveillance and anti-surveillance techniques on the web. Um, I worked at Hyperledger for four years as their head of security um, and studying how blockchains could be used for, you know, everything, right? In the end, what I realized was that the problem that everybody's scrambling for, or the problem that everybody's trying to solve is authenticity. By authenticity, I mean, how do you know any piece of data came from where it says it came from, and that it has been, has not been modified, and that the the thing that created the data, the person or the, the computer or whatever, has not recanted or hasn't revoked it is the term we use, okay? And the reason why that is actually the problem, the reason why I, I start there is because it took 20 years uh, for me to get to that point, that that is actually the underlying problem. And I think everybody else in the world, maybe they haven't gotten to that point yet, but there's a lot of people still searching they're, they're trying to solve this problem. Uh, the Web3 stuff, the NFT stuff, um, that's all an attempt to solve authenticity. Like I have a legitimate copy of a board ape. That's all an NFT is, right? That's why the joke of ha ha ha, I, I right click and stole your art is not the point, mm -hmm. right? Okay. The point is, is that I have provable provenance and I am one of, I own one of the legitimate copies. There could be a million copies, but I own the provenance on it, right? I'm one of the few people that says I, my copy is the legitimate one, right? And so the reason that's important is because the, our identity, our digital identity on the internet is just a narrow form of authentic data. Um, because transmitting authentic data on the internet is the same thing as transmitting trust, okay? If there is a company in the world that everybody trusts, say like the DMV of Nevada, which would be a government organization, or say like the Bank of America or whatever, an institution that people trust to do a good job of verifying who I am, right? If they give me that data as authentic data, meaning it has cryptographic provenance associated with it that can be independently verified by anybody, then you don't have to trust me. I can give you that data and you don't have to trust me. You just have to trust who created the data. And what I give you is the data plus the provenance log is what we call them. 
And you or anybody can independently verify it using cryptography to verify that it's authentic, that it came from Bank of America, that it hasn't been modified. I didn't modify it. And that Bank of America still stands behind. It. You know, they are like, yes, you're Dave. And, you know, here's your, here's, here's a piece of data that says we recognize that that's your first name, right? That we verified that. And so why does this apply to Twitter? Well, in the modern context, if you go and do something, say something illegal on Twitter, and I mean by illegal, I mean like the most libertarian aggressive interpretation of the First Amendment, meaning you can use any word you want, you can say pretty much anything you want, as long as you don't post a direct actionable threat against somebody. To come murder you. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Or you post some content that's obviously created by, you know, harming other people. Um, then I should be able to say anything. And if I say, if I do that on Twitter, then we want to be able to know who that is. But as long as we are not making those kinds of threats or posting harmful content, um, then we should be able to say whatever we want. And I, sh I should, and everybody should enjoy pseudonymity by default. And so here's how this works. And I'm trying to sum up of like, you know, 20 years of general research and three years of very specific research into the solution. And this is what the blog post is about. Um, if you think about what Twitter actually needs to know, they don't need to know who you are at all. All Twitter needs to know is that some institution that Twitter trusts knows who you are and that you give Twitter some piece of data, it could be a big random number or whatever, and I'll explain that in a second, um, that allows them at any point in the future to cooperate with law enforcement if you should ever post something illegal, right? So I go to Twitter and be like, you don't need to know who I am. Um, and I can prove to you using cryptography that say like, Finclusive, which is a compliance as a service company and they do KYC and stuff. Um, they know who I am. And by the way, should you, you know, should law enforcement ever come with a warrant and need to know who I am because I did something illegal on Twitter, here's a little piece of data you can give to them and it'll walk it back to Finclusive and then I will be unmasked. So this is like perfect Fourth Amendment privacy. It's pseudonymity by default. It would allow people to be on Twitter and say whatever the heck they want. Um, just as long as you don't do anything actually illegal in the narrowest interpretation, the most libertarian inter interpretation of the First Amendment. And um, one last detail, that piece of data you give to Twitter, uh, it has to be verifiably encrypted. And this is a different kind of encryption. It's encryption that comes with a proof that, of who can decrypt it. So Twitter gets it and they can independently verify that that piece of data um, can be decrypted by say like Bank of America or Finclusive or whoever. So what this is, is it's a clever application of, of cryptography to align incentives in the game theory sense, kind of like how Bitcoin is, is a game theory hack. That's something I think, I'm gonna take a quick aside here. That's something I think people don't realize about Bitcoin is that Bitcoin actually didn't invent any technology. It's a clever rearrangement of existing cryptographic techniques and, and uh, computer science to create a game theory hack so that all everybody's incentives are aligned to behave so that they all do the right thing to make Bitcoin.
network. So we're trying to achieve the same thing here where Twitter doesn't actually know anything about the users and that's on purpose so that they don't have any real moderation capability. This would allow Twitter to fire their entire moderation staff actually um, because their, their role now becomes much more of a general communications tool, kind of like the phone system where they just take these verifiably encrypted things, verify that you know each person has been KYC'd by some company on their list and that you each one of us gives them this verifiably encrypted piece of data. Should we ever do anything illegal, law enforcement can go and do their job. So it's sort of the, it's the American compromise between anonymity and you know having free speech and still having nice things. And it's the one thing that nobody's talking about in all of these debates about the future of Twitter, because I don't think people understand that this technology actually exists. This is a problem that's been, people have been trying to solve for, I don't know, ever, ever since the internet. I, I can remember, you know, shit posting on, on Usenet and then people tracking down your Usenet gateway and trying to find out who you were. Um, and so this has been a problem since I started on the internet in the late eighties, early nineties. Uh, and it wasn't until just recently that we had the cryptography and the understanding to really make this work. And what we've built, we're open sourcing. So Cryptid Technologies is a completely open source company. We're open sourcing all of the tools. Um, we're open sourcing all of the, the protocols. Um, when we decided to make a company or when we decided to go down this road, we wrote, and I, I think I've linked to it in the past, we wrote some some articles that just stated our purpose and stated our principles, you know, the principles of user sovereignty. Yeah, um, linked to them on our uh, yeah. previous episodes. Yeah, so everything we've built is in line with that. Open protocols, open file formats, strong open source encryption, always privacy by default, pseudonymity by default, consent-based power structure, right? Revocation and consent-based power structure, that kind of stuff. So yeah, we're, we're just now coming out of stealth. We're open sourcing all these tools. Um, and what better way to, to introduce it to the world than to talk to Elon. So I wrote him a love letter. I was like, I, I hope he hears That's it. Right. Coming back around to the intro. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I'm a bit long-winded about this. No, it's hard no, to shrink good. 20 good. years of, of trying to figure this out, uh, down into something that's a general audience, uh, um, explanation, but really what it is, is I'll be able to go to, everybody would go to some KYC vendor and you know, get your, your identity known, like your name or whatever. They give you that data as authentic data, which means it has provable provenance that's, that's independently verifiable. Then when you go to log on to Twitter, they actually send you a check to you and to say, hey, prove to me that you've been KYC'd by one of these companies. And they have a list that they you know, approve. And you just say, yep, here it is. You know, Bank of America knows who I am. The DMV of Nevada knows who I am, You know, whatever. And uh, then Twitter's like, hey, welcome, shit post away. I think it would be really interesting for us to double down on our American tradition, I think. And uh, I, I just want someone to call my bluff. I, I want Elon to call me tomorrow and just say, prove it, Dave, because I would love to demo. It is so cool what we're doing. It's so cool. I, it, it, it just blows my mind every day when I see the, what, this new, what these, these new cryptographic techniques do. Yeah. Anyway, 
So I, so I've, I've had many opportunities to ask you questions about these things. Kyle is not. So I would, I would, I think I'd like to hand it to Kyle to see if he has any questions. Although I will say the, the thing that I agree with you most on here is I, I agree that privacy is essential to, uh, you know, maintaining democracy and all of those things. And I think people tend to forget that because with all of the changes and evolution and, and the way that we communicate online, I think it's, you know, it, it's something that is easy to forget, but I do agree with yeah. you. I just, I just want to push back on the evolution of our language. It's just really stupid to hear people say, well, like my political enemies are domestic terrorists. It's like, no, they are not. They just disagree with you. Like okay. We should, your enemies are. Well, <laughs> oh, the, like, like I'm talking about like, you know, political arguments in this country are now like they're what is the rule where it's like eventually somebody mentions hitler and then it kills the oh, thread the, um i can't remember the God, well God God law. Yeah, God. yeah God was, so the new one now is like eventually they'll just call you a domestic terrorist right D disagreements yeah. now online tend to be just like i'm going to report you to the fbi i'm going to get you swatted you're a domestic terrorist like this right. is ridiculous or, like or the alternate what is it what do you call people who are far left i don't know anyway <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah. back to the, the cryptography though. Um yeah, I wondered if well so I had a yeah, I had a couple couple questions came to mind, but if if I don't know how much you folks have already talked about uh, this sort of thing in previous shows. So if I've covered if I'm asking something that's already been covered, feel free, uh Catherine, to veto or say no, got no, it, please. and then we can move no. on to the next one. Um so I guess the one of the first uh, questions that came to my mind when I was listening to this was I was wondering where you felt anonymity fits into this world uh, where because it, it sounds like you're you're maybe proposing that Twitter do away with anonymity uh, in account creation. It sounds like you're you would be asking for a stronger proof of identity than is currently being asked for to join that network. And so I'm wondering in your mind where you think anonymity fits in. Yeah, so, so in the context of Twitter, if you read between the lines, and actually you don't have to anymore, Elon Musk has been pretty explicit about it just recently. The goal is to try to make transparency happen. So things that are bots, things that are not real humans are marked as not real humans or real humans are marked as real humans and everything else is not. Um, and I think that that level of transparency is important simply because for many years we've seen false consensus be created on Twitter through um, botnets, right? There, that's a real problem because humans are social creatures and people who don't think too deeply about certain topics because they're busy up with other things, uh, our human default tends to be, you know, psychologically is like, well, what does everybody else think? Right. And it's like, oh, that seems to be the consensus. Okay. I'm on board with that. Right. And so if you can create false consensus on Twitter, it's a form of propaganda. It's a form of like manipulating people because most of us just want to get along, you know, go along to get along. And as I know, I do on a lot of things that I don't think too deeply about. And so that can be manipulated to uh, change the outcomes of elections. I'm not going to make any direct accusations, but we do know. I mean, there's been lots of evidence. I mean, look at like the documentary, The Great Hack. I don't know how accurate that is, but it suggests that like Facebook was manipulated to change outcomes of elections. And so 
we want to be able to basically have an anti-civil attack mechanism built into Twitter. Anti-civil attack is, you know, civil attacks are like, I can have a hundred thousand accounts and I can make them all say the same thing. And so anybody observing it will think there's a hundred thousand people who think that, even though it's actually just me, right? So it's a, it's a signal amplification attack uh, on Twitter anyway. And so we want some mechanism to do that. Now, where does anonymity or pseudonymity come into play? I think that protects people from doxing. I think it would just, or not doxing, but uh, canceling. I think it would open up the breadth of what's acceptable on Twitter. People might disagree with it, but you know what? This is the United States and people say mean things. That's, that's what has always been, you know? Um, but there are some special cases outside of Twitter where actual anonymity is really important. Um, you know, I used to work tangentially with the Secure Drop project uh, at the Freedom of, or what is it, the Freedom of the Press Foundation, right? Mm -hmm. So I was involved with the Tor project um, a little bit when I was at Mozilla. And that's a case where you have whistleblowers who want to be able to securely rat on, you know, leak data for the interest of society, right? That's always been the, the thing, one of the things that has been a tradition in this country. And we've always protected whistleblowers, or at least we try to. Um, and so being able to anonymously post, maybe Twitter's not the best place to do that because you would be at least pseudonymous. So, you know, to get on Twitter as a real person to leak something, there would be some other institution that would know who you were. And in some cases, that's not ideal, right? Um, especially in countries that don't have as robust uh, protections as the United States does, uh, you'd want to be able to dump this stuff anonymously. I mean, look at like, look at all the leaks that Julian Assange gets at, at WikiLeaks, right? Those that stuff is all uh, reported or you know given to them using SecureDrop. So there is some times where we do want that, but I would not allow that to be straight to public consumption. You know, it's like if you want to leak data to say WikiLeaks, here's our secure drop, or here's a way you can get it to us, you know, without revealing your identity. Uh, but that doesn't immediately go to public consumption. It doesn't get trending on Twitter, for instance. Um, then there, uh, you know, what were you gonna say, Kyle? Oh, I think that's I, if you If you have more to say on that, please go ahead. No, I was, I was just gonna transition, sort of riff off of that to then sort of the next. So it sounds like you're, you're sort of proposing that there'd be stronger identity requirements to create a Twitter account or otherwise have some sort of, um, purgatory is not the right word, but some sort of uh, uh, probation for accounts that aren't identified in some way, it sounds like potentially as a way to get around it, if not, or yeah, maybe you can clarify that first before I do the follow-up. No, it's just like there would be a tiered system on Twitter. You can create an account all you want. Um, it just won't be marked as a real human. Got right, it. it'll be okay. come off as a bot. Can, so you would you be downgraded. Well, whatever. Because if I look at an account like that, that, that is not a real human, I'm going to assume it's some bot, they're trying to sell me or it's propaganda or whatever. It's somebody doing a signal amplification attack. And I would be able to filter those out of my feed. I'd be like, I just want to see real humans. Right. So, so since, since you're at Mozilla, and we're talking about, um, I'm not actually at Mozilla. I was. You, I mean, you were. I mean, because you were at Mozilla and dealing <laughs> yeah, with yeah. certificate issues at, at various points. I imagine, like most people, most people that work in web browsers, at least have some sort of CA system um, 
background. So it sounds almost like you're sort of proposing uh, sort of the way that we currently think of certificates like DV certs versus like regular old certs uh, versus no cert at all kind of thing, where if you go to a website and you see, oh, it has no cert, well, I don't know. Oh, it has some kind of certificate. Okay, cool, something happened. Um, and then if it went, if they if they splurged and they're not using Let's Encrypt right now, and then, so they went and bought that $100 cert or whatever, and they did the KYC, then that would, I guess that would be the blue check where someone's not just getting the pseudo anonymous pseudonym. Pseudonymous. I was going to say pseudonymous, right? Yeah. I can say pseudonymity, but I cannot say that. Yeah, pseudonymous. So like the middle tier would be that, like I have some sort of verification, but then like the blue check to me, the reason that people make such a big deal about that, I believe, is that in the purpose of it would be say, here's my actual identity, that my first name, last name, and my and, and tied to that is not just my first name, last name, but also my role, which has some sort of significance for some reason. So it's not just that I happen to have this first name, last name, but I have this first name, last name, and I am the such and such at so and so. Yes. Um, and, and that's been proven. So when I say this, it's coming with that gravitas or authority of whatever, at least that's the idea behind it. But yeah, it sounds like you sort of it's sort of like a three tiered domain system in a way or a TLS system. Yeah, so that brings up two really cool points. One is a, I'll, I'll start with the point, and then the second one is a great transition into the next part of what I want to talk about. So the way I see Twitter is, so if Elon calls me tomorrow and says, "Okay, Dave, fix this," okay, here's what would come, what I would do with Twitter. Uh, anybody can create an account for any reason, any number of them. Okay, it starts off as an account that is a bot account. We just assume you're a bot, right? And there would be ways to filter out based on this tiered system. So I could say, I just want to see only real humans. Okay. So then if I want to upgrade my account, I go and get KYC'd. And I assume that like Twitter would do a loss leader on this because that costs money. So I'm assuming they would just say, you know what, use any one of our vendors because they're already going to make a list of vendors that they trust. So it's like, go to any of those, you know, here's the, here's the link that gets you the free KYC process. Um, and what's important here is that Twitter doesn't do it. They're actually trusting a third party to do it for them. So there's a division of, of concerns here, division of labor on purpose, right? This is like the principle of, of separating powers in our, in our uh, government. So. so then I would go and I'd get KYC'd. And then I'd come back to Twitter and say, I got KYC'd. They know who I am. And by the way, here's my verifiably encrypted, what we call a view token. So at some point in the future, that can be used to de-anonymize myself. I would like to think that that is um, data that Twitter doesn't ever keep online anywhere. Like it goes into an offline storage somewhere. And the only time we ever uh, go back to that data is under judicial review. So like I did something illegal, a judge says, yes, here's a warrant, go to Twitter, get it, walk it back, figure out who they are and you know, charge them with a crime. Okay. So I come back to Twitter, I say, yep, I've been KYC, here's my, my look token my view token. And so then immediately my account gets a heart. It's a heartbeat account, right? I have a heartbeat, I'm a human, okay? And then I can make any number of those. I can make a thousand heartbeat accounts, okay? Because, or maybe there's some limit. Maybe I can make 50 heartbeat accounts or whatever, I don't know. Um, but 
they can have different levels of pseudonymity, right? So I could have a Mrs. Silence Do Good account, but then I could also have a Heartbeat Blue Check account that has Dave Hughesby, CEO of Crypto, right? That would be the my real identity account. That's the one that gets the blue check mark because it's my role and my real name. But at the same time, I have any number of these Heartbeat accounts where I can say whatever I want. You know, I could be one that, is an elderly widow, you know, saying humorous things about the state of, of, you know, 18th century America. So that's how I would do Twitter. I would make it a three-tiered system, bots, heartbeats, blue checks. And blue checks are your real public identity where I would talk about concerns and, you know, cryptography and all that stuff. But then all the heartbeat accounts, I could speak uh, my mind about politics and about whatever is going on, my local school board, you know? That kind of stuff. So then, do you have any questions with that before I move on to the transition? Um, I mean, sort of. I, I the next question, and so you can we can table this if if you're going to cover it or get toward that. But my next question would be about the fact that because Twitter is not a national service, but it is an international um, uh, network, that. Um, in thinking about how this would be implemented internationally, uh, certain uh, governments are fans of, of having important services be state-run. And so I could see certain governments uh, having their citizens use KYC services that are state-run. And in that case, it's true that Twitter wouldn't know who you are. Um, without getting, without you know, going through the extra step of asking, but a government, um, if KYC and the government are one and the same, I guess is my question. Could you maybe talk through that threat model? That's a really good question. This is a really great question. This is a problem that we don't seek to solve, but does exist in the world with, like you touched on, certificate authority systems. Um, this is a Western debate primarily because non-Western countries who you, you know, use state-run services like that do so to um, censor and to you know, enforce their dictatorship or whatever, right? And um, what I'm proposing is let's just apply the American tradition to Twitter. We're gonna set a, a, a pretty hardcore line in the sand. Um, but I recognize that there's a lot of Western countries that, like, for instance, Germany, who issues digital uh, ID cards with, with um, uh, key pairs and stuff tied directly to your identity. Uh, there might be some debate to this. Now, the way the certificate authority system has always dealt with this is, well, not always, recently, they have a global transparency system. So when credentials are issued or misissued, it becomes obvious, right? It's, it's a radical transparency system. So I don't know about it, how you would do it in, in Western countries. If you trust your government, say you're like a Swedish citizen and you're okay with the Swedish government KYCing you, they do that anyway for all of you know, your medical benefits, your education, all that stuff. Um, sure. I mean, one of the things, the, the, one of the most, the easiest KYC solutions here in the United States would be the DMV, right? They give us all driver's licenses. They, they identify all of us, right? They KYC all of us. And no, I don't think anybody would really care if like whatever state you live in was your KYC source to be on Twitter. I don't think 
because we have that Fourth Amendment protections of it would have to be under judicial review to de-anonymize you. Um, in other countries, obviously, they have different religious traditions or religious. Well, yeah, some religious traditions, but legal traditions, um, which don't have as strong protections for individual privacy and you know and uh, criminal proceedings. So, I don't really have a comment on this. I'm American. I think what this does is it gives them a tool set to apply whatever is the legal tradition in their country to this. So if Twitter were to operate in the UK or in Norway, they have different laws around free speech and different laws around how criminal investigations happen. This would allow Twitter to operate in those countries according to the law and um, ignoring obviously the concerns about using VPNs and IP masking and blah, 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 right? Like, oh, I'm in the UK, but I'm really not in the UK because I'm hitting it from Argentina or whatever. Like, we're just going to ignore that. I'm going to paper over that because I don't think Twitter is in the place to try to solve that, actually. I think at this point, if, if this toolkit went into place, Twitter could just say, look, we are a communications platform. You know, uh, maybe part of the KYC process is is a way to, you know, identify where someone is, like a nation, like the, the legal jurisdiction or something. I don't know. Maybe that's part of the disclosure. I wouldn't. I would argue not. I would argue that in the United States, all I have to do is prove that I'm known, right? And that might be the dead giveaway that I'm an American because everywhere else would have to require, you know, I'm a UK citizen, so I'm under these laws versus, you know, the default position <laughs> that all the Americans enjoy. That's how I would look at that. It's a difficult problem. And I think what we really need to do is just acknowledge that that is difficult. And what we really need is a set of tools that at least get us to the point where we have privacy by default and pseudonymity by default. Because once you're there, then in each legal jurisdiction, you can walk it back from there, right? So what this does is allow us to have absolute privacy, absolute pseudonymity by default. So in the American context, it's perfectly aligned with our constitution. But in everywhere else, we can, you know, the disclosure of that, you know, view token or whatever, could include other things like I'm a UK citizen or I'm this, whatever, for Twitter to operate in the UK. And this would be up to the negotiation between Twitter's leadership and those other countries. Uh, I actually like the idea that we would export our American values to as many places in the world as we can. This one in particular, there's a lot to be said about our country, good and bad, but I think this one is truly exceptional. And I think we, we should do well to try to encourage its adoption elsewhere. But do you really I, I think, think that would happen? <laughs> I, 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 I don't care. I, like I, think we, to... <laughs> I, think... I, just, I just don't think that we should feel bad about our view on free speech oh, and the First part. Amendment and the Fourth Amendment. Everybody That's shames us for it. And it's like, I'm not, I'm not going to feel bad about it anymore. I think ours is an enlightened view, actually. I think... Yeah. I think my concern with the explanation, it, it it seems like this runs the risk of creating kind of a digital caste system. Like you have the free world and you have the not free world and you have, you know, you have huge parts of the, the world that would just not be able or for the most part willing to participate in a system that authenticates them as humans. Therefore, you have you have legitimate humans from let's say certain countries around the world that that may or may not trust their government to issue such an ID 
Um, and then you have, you know, huge, probably the majority of the rest of the world that does not. And then, so you have, I don't know that that's, I'm glad, I'm glad you asked that question, Kyle, because I think that's a, that's a pretty serious consideration that I can see being very problematic. Like well, I, that's the web, that's I'm the web today. Countries where I wouldn't want to be authentic, you know, I wouldn't want to be authentic. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the web today. I mean, that's why the Tor project exists. But we're talking about Twitter and what Twitter can do and what the leadership of Twitter can do, what the engineers of Twitter can do. They're a legal corporation who need to follow the laws. Okay. Now, the Tor project is an edgy project that, you know, provides tools for anybody, anywhere, and they don't make a distinction. So I don't believe Twitter can operate like that. I think we need to acknowledge that other countries exist, other legal structures exist, and that Twitter should operate under that assumption this is just a toolkit that would allow them to do so and in somewhat of a of a selfish uh, position i'm an american twitter's an american company i think we should i think it should have american ideals baked into it right i really do i i personally want to be able to go on twitter and actually have an honest political debate i want to read twitter and hear an honest political debate I want to hear what people really think when they're not afraid of losing their jobs or when they're not afraid of being, um, you know, protested or, or, or not afraid of like being attacked personally for their opinions, right? What's in my head, um, I should be able to share with you. This is my opinion and you can take it or, dis or dismiss me and ignore me, but I think it's improper for people to hear my opinions and then try to get me fired or get me swatted or, uh, you know, attack my kids or, you know, get me canceled in any way. I think that's a destructive, a destructive thing for our society. It destroys our society. Isn't that a separate issue though? I mean, couldn't you, couldn't you make, you know, isn't pure tr true anonymity better in that scenario? Like why, why do you necessarily need the, the pseudonymy? Uh, yeah. I mean, and I, I, I get, I get where you're going. I just, I, I wonder if you're truly, out there putting out putting out ideas that you don't want to be associated with yourself necessarily my real self but i do very verified human because um there are things you can do like what the goal here is we want nice things right so nice things come from a balance of laws that are applied equally to everybody um that are de designed through some kind of consensus right plus the ability to protect, protest those laws and have those laws change, right? So nice things is, is falls in the gap, right? Is, is the, the balance there. And I think what's wrong with this whole debate right now is everybody's like, you know, you can't authenticate everybody because then I won't be able to come on and, you know, run my botnet and create false <laughs> consensus and do all those things. Right. And then everybody is- Disinformation bots, yeah, I get that. Right, but. and so, I think for us, if we really wanted to double down um, on our American tradition, we would expect people to prove that they're humans and, and to mark them such, mark them as such, so that each one of us gets to decide to what level we want to be exposed to what information on the internet, or at least on Twitter, right? Like, if I don't want anything from bots, I can just be like, no bots, please. And if I want to only see blue check marks, it's like only blue check marks, please, right? Like I want to see people who are using their real name, but I do want that middle ground where there are real humans and they're not falsely creating consensus um, 
but are able to speak their mind because there's no real world consequences because it's not tied to the real world identity. People should like be able to speak their minds. Of, I like the idea of, let's say, you know, in the Twitter example, a blue check mark for anybody who wants one. I mean, I, I, yes. I like that idea in general. Um, anyway, sorry, Kylie, you have a question. Oh, well, I had a, I had a question and maybe uh, my question will take a minute to ask, but I will set the stage by saying I'm going to ask about revocability of your pseudo identity. Um, and for, I guess, at least two reasons came to mind. First was I, was I keep going back when I think about identity on the internet to a section in Snowden's autobiography, Permanent Record, which this sec section kind of is, is what I think led to the title in many ways, but he's talking about being coming of age on the internet in the 1990s. And he talks about being a teenager or young adult, uh, talking with other people on the internet in the, in the late 90s. And one of the things that commonly happens when you're coming of age is you are in becoming a, an adult, is you're starting to form your opinions about things. And they're not, and they're maybe, they're very fervently felt, but they're not completely thought through usually. They're half-baked, and it takes yeah. a while into adulthood before they start getting fully baked. Anyway, what he talked about was, is he found valuable back then was the fact that he could post under a pseudonym on a forum and try out, I'm going to be a hardcore libertarian today, or the yes. message, I'm going to be, I'm going to be a communist tomorrow um, in a different account. Try those suits on and see which one fits. Um, but more importantly than trying the suit on and see what fits and throwing those ideas out there and then seeing how they're refuted and then changing his mind um, was the fact that he could take that suit off and throw it away. Yes. He no longer needed it. And so, so that's the first reason that I would ask about revocability of this identity, because um, if I, if I have many, if I have a lot of pseudo identities on, on say, say Twitter that ultimately could link back to me, but don't without extraordinary circumstances, but I want to revoke one of them because I don't like how that suit fits anymore. That was my, I compartmentalize all of my, hardcore communist ideology in this one account, let's say, yeah. and then was was trying that on for size. It had all kinds of, you know, whatever. Um, then later, I'm like, you know what? I don't I, I don't like that anymore. I don't believe that. I tried that on. People got into an honest political debate with me and convinced me otherwise. And I don't want to be associated with those thoughts anymore for the rest of my life as part of my permanent record because they're not really my ideas anymore. I was trying them on for size and realized that I, I, I need the freedom to change my mind. So all, that to, that all of that to say, like in this system, so that's the first part of why I would say it, and I will remember the next one later. Um, but how would you handle revocability of this link? Because um, oh, I know what the other one is, but that's separate. Uh, well, no, I'll tie it together. So how would you handle revocability of the link? And the other reason I think it's important is one, to have the freedom to change your mind without your, um, your previous thoughts being associated with you forever and, and then having to say, well, I changed my mind 10 years later because I'm more enlightened. Because we even see now how there's, for example, many founding fathers who changed their mind about a lot of opinions um, over the course of founding the country. And for some people that's sufficient and for others it's not. Uh, anyway, the other thing is, uh, Going back to the CA system, the notion of trust agility, which is if a certificate authority has been proven to be untrustworthy, you want the ability to revoke trust in that entity. 
Um, in the case of certificate authorities, often you're, you don't trust them because either their security is so poor that they could issue identity, they could issue certificates um, that are that seem legitimate, but they, you know, but someone hacked it. The other reason is is could be their verification was so lax that it's very easy to get something that seems authentic that they have vouched for. So for both of those reasons, I was wondering if you talk about revocability, either so you can change freedom to change your mind, or second, your um, the person who has your trust in escrow, your identity in escrow, um, is found to be untrustworthy. Yeah, so this is cool. So I could write a PhD thesis on all this, but um, let me see if I can answer some of these really quickly and get to the meat of it. Um, the Let's see, your first question was, how do I, like, what's my road to redemption, right? Like, there's a re religious principles about, like, everybody should always have an option to redeem themselves, to change their minds, to get right with the world, whatever, right? Pay their debt, whatever, change their mind, okay? And to be respected in that I am no longer that person that was, you know, indiscretion of youth or, you know, whatever. I'm a different person now. Um, that is easy to do with this system. And I'm going to start talking a little bit about technicals here, and I'll try to keep it as light as I can. The, like I said, we haven't solved this problem up until this point. Uh, and it took several key innovations, uh, reusing or misusing existing cryptographic techniques to not only get fully decentralized, meaning no central control, no silos, anything, fully decentralized, independently verifiable provenance on any data. Um, what that means is that if I want to create any kind of data, so KYC data, any file, like a photograph or anything like that, associated with that needs to have a log, a provenance log. And what's the first thing you do when you create a provenance log is you create a key pair. And think of it as like a mini blockchain, although there's no consensus, there's no network or anything. It's literally just a file of uh, linked records. And the reason I call it that, that it's a provenance log, it's different than like a web log, you know, like a, a web server's log file or anything like that, because each record uh, contains some cryptographic link to the previous one. So it's more like a blockchain than it is like a, a log on your computer. Um, and it has crypto puzzles in it so that the next event or the next thing, next item added to the log has to solve a previous crypto puzzle. So you can project security into the future. And then we use this new, uh, well, it's not new, it's, it's fairly old technique, but uh, it's becoming popular now. It's called uh, strobe, which is a new cryptographic, I don't even know, new, old, whatever. It's an approach where you're constantly feeding back the new data into the old data. It uses a sponge construction so that you can add some data to it, to a file, right? And then you can get what's called a PRF, a pseudorandom you know, number. Basically, that's like the hash of all the data up to that point. And then you can add more and you can get another value out of that. And what that does is it enforces order, the, the order in which data was added it enforces what data was added. So you can get end-to-end -end verifiability of it. Um, but it, what it more importantly does is it allows you to checkpoint the state of a file as it gets constructed. That allows you to create a provenance log. So I created a key pair. Here's the first record, blah, blah, blah. Then I get the, the basically the hash of that state. Okay. And then I want to go and rotate my keys. I add another one, rotates my keys using crypto puzzles. And then I have a new state, right? Uh, if I take a photo and I want to link that 
um, provenance log to the photo, then I mix in the photo into the provenance log. Um, and there's different ways to do that. But essentially what that does is it provides key history. And more importantly, the use of cryptography allows me to become what we call a controller. I control it. I possess the keys. I know all the secrets. I'm the only one who can update it. So I control that. I own that log. Now, to get to, to revocation, I'm going to show you. So what we really needed to do was to have those. And then how are we going to bless it in a way like the certificate authority system does? Okay. How do you turn a provenance log into the functional equivalent of an X509 certificate? Okay. And how do you do it in a, in a very decentralized way? Meaning there's not one company, there's not, you don't have to use a certain storage mechanism. You don't have to use any particular blockchain or any service or anything like that. You know, decentralized like in email. Um, and what it really takes is you have to have a root of trust in the certificate authority system. That's the root CAs, right? The root, root certificate authorities, members of the CAB forum. Um, and you, you called it correctly. I do have a background in the certificate authority system. <laughs> um, but instead of having this cabal of organizations that we all have to decide to trust, uh, we have this thing now called blockchains. And so what we designed was a system that doesn't require any one, it doesn't require a blockchain, first of all. So this isn't a blockchain uh, solution necessarily. It's not a cryptocurrency solution. So it differs completely from NFTs and the Web3. So there's no cryptocurrencies, no fees, none of that stuff, no minting, whatever. Um, but, the, but the blockchains are very handy for this because they can replace the entire root certificate system. Specifically, Bitcoin can because of its size and, and the fact that it's so resilient to attack and all these other things. Um, and so one of the things that people don't realize about Bitcoin is, you know, currency aside, Let's just ignore all of that. It is a really, really handy way to have a clock that everybody agrees on. Bitcoin, the Bitcoin network is a clock that ticks every 10 minutes, roughly. And each tick you can say is unpredictable. So the hash or whatever, the, the number, the identifier for that tick in time is somewhat random. Right? It's hard to predict, almost impossible to predict. If you could predict it, then you could mine every block, basically. And so the other cool thing about this is we can attach arbitrary data to each tick, each point in time. Okay? And this allows us all to agree on the ordering of events. And that's why the currency works, because you know, I paid you, you paid Catherine. That's all recorded in the blockchain. That's you know, the order of events. That's how it went. Um, and Bitcoin has exactly 80 bytes in a transaction we can put random data. So we had to solve, how do you get potentially billions or trillions or quadrillions or 10 to the 18 off-chain updates to these provenance logs, creating a new state in the provenance log? How do you get that state recorded in Bitcoin in a way that everybody could verify it? And we looked for ways to do this. Microsoft's ION system for identity uses, a off, uh, uses what's called a side tree which is a form of Merkle tree. And it, it sums up the state of that and puts it into a Bitcoin transaction every so often, right? That's one way of doing it. It's highly, it doesn't scale as much as our, our approach does. Um, but one of my co-founders was going back through old cryptography and found 
these things called cryptographic accumulators and then extended the use of those. And this is what I meant like kind of misuse. It was sort of a, it's not a hack. I don't want to say that it's anything less than, than good cryptography math and everything, but it was like, these weren't originally designed for this, but they solved this problem. What it allows us to do is to take those new states. So I have a provenance log for my identity. You have one for yours. I have one for each of my photos as I take them. You have them for, you know, every one of your mechanical calculators, you know, tracking ownership of them. Um, and as I change those states, like I rotate keys or I update something, like I edit a photo or whatever, it creates a new state on that provenance log. And it creates that, that PRF, that, stro that sponge construct, which is basically the hash of that state. We put those into these accumulators and those accumulators are actually only 48 bytes long. And then there's a 32 byte hash of the public key associated with the accumulator. And then we put that, that gives us 80 bytes and we put that into Bitcoin blockchains. What this effectively does is it makes infinite the Bitcoin blockchain transaction throughput rate. It doesn't create cryptocurrency tokens like what you get on Ethereum. And it's not about trading Bitcoins, actually. Um, it's just that we can have these off-chain records that are fully decentralized. I have mine, you have yours, Catherine has hers, there's no central storage, there's no central coordination. But as I live my life and change the state of all the provenance of me and my data and everything, and Catherine does, um, and you do, Kyle, we're all hitting these, these uh, anchoring services, which, by the way, we're going to open source them. You can run your own anchoring service. Um, and it will record in Bitcoin or it can record in Ethereum or if it's inside of a corporation and it's, you know, access badges to get into the building, that can be a SQL database or an, L an LDAP server or something, right? It just has to have public storage and the ordering of events, okay? Uh, in the public context, in the global context, Bitcoin is the most convenient way to do this. And it was actually originally designed to do this, although, again, it can work with any blockchain, or any storage mechanism, as long as there's a clock and, and storage that's publicly readable in the quote unquote domain of trust, right? So to get to revocation. So what the accumulators are is essentially a set proof. Um, given an accumulator, you cannot know what numbers went into calculating it. But if I give you an accumulator and I give you my provenance log and you calculate it out to a certain state, you can replay the, the provenance log and get the hash at a certain state you can see that the accumulator has my value in it, okay? And so you can, what that tells you is that my provenance log existed in that state at the time that Bitcoin transaction existed. So my identity existed, the file, I, the photo I took existed, and I'm the first person to assert ownership rights over that photograph, so it is actually mine. I'm the one who took it, right? And those set proofs can be used to do the opposite. So let's say you are, let's pick a random company. You're, well, I won't pick on any specific company. Let's just say you're a credit rating agency, okay? And you want to publish everybody's credit reports to each person and say, we don't wanna store your personal information actually, because that's kind of like toxic waste, right? So we're gonna do the credit check on you and then we'll pro produce a report and we'll give it to you as authentic data. What we need to do as a company, what I need to do as a company is if I find out that that credit report is now false in some way, like you skipped out on all your bills or you declare bankruptcy or whatever. And so your credit history and your credit score goes down or, or whatever. Um, 
I need to be able to revoke it in a way that anybody you would give your credit history to would know. And the way I do that is when I gave you your credit history, I took the hash of your provenance log and I put it in a, an accumulator that is a revocation set, a non-revocation set. So if, it, if it's included in there, then your credential or your, your credit history is still valid. It's still validly authentic, right? I haven't revoked it. But one of the cool things about these accumulators is I can do batch updates. So if you and the 10,000 other people out there that did something that messed up their credit today, I batch them all up and I remove everybody's credit history from that accumulator and I publish a new one. And then I anchor my, <laughs> that updated thing in my provenance log in say Bitcoin. So your credit history and its associated provenance log, when you try to go and say get a loan or rent a, uh, an apartment, the person asking for your credit check will want to verify that it's authentic. Well, the provenance log says, well, this was issued by Equifax or by, you know, Experian or one of them. And uh, it was issued and it was anchored in, or it's the revocation set is here, right? And they would be able to immediately go and check to see if that, uh, the provenance, the credit history was still in that set. So what this allows me, that's part of the verification process. So what this allows me to do as the credit rating agency is to give you your credit history. And as soon as I change it, I just revoke it. And I can reissue it to you automatically. I mean, we have apps, right? So I could just push a new one out that is in a new set, but your old one in the old set you know, has been removed from the old set. So you cannot use your old one, but your new one is valid. It's in a, it's in a non-revocation set that I just published. So what this allows me to do as a company is I can push data out in the world. I can protect my brand, I can protect the integrity of my services and the data I create. And then should any of that, change about the data I published, I can go and revoke it and say, and signal to the whole world, this no longer, I, I no longer stand behind this. Okay. Now what this works for in the context of Twitter is if Twitter suddenly became like secure scuttlebutt where everything associated with an identity was linked to the previous ones. And you had like a flow of information all linked to a cryptographic key pair. Um, I would be able to revoke it because it's mine. And so I could, remove it. And as long as I didn't link that identity to any of my other identities, there would be no way for anybody to link it themselves. And there are techniques for that. I can do cryptographic tricks <clears throat> where at, I can do like a commitment. It's called a commitment um, where I publish some data that doesn't reveal the link between this one identity and my real identity or any other of my identities. But in the future, should I ever want to prove it was me, I can reveal the secret and that commitment. Well, you know, I'll produce a pre-image or, you know, the secret key or whatever, and it will prove cryptographically that I have been that person all along. It's interesting you bring up, uh, hold on a second. It's interesting you bring up about the nineties, right? So I've been an open source developer forever, but one of the problems I face right now in my career is I can't prove it. I used to, publish, I used to commit code changes all the time anonymously under false identities. I always have because cryptography has always been really interesting to me. And I've always loved the idea of being like secret, you know, like nobody knows who I am. And so all of my open source contributions over the 25 years that I've been participating in projects, I've always done under false identities. 
you know, random emails, false. And in fact, I still have a bunch of them today that I still use on occasion. Um, and the problem is, is I didn't have any way of tracking key history like we do in provenance logs. And I had no way of doing these commitments to link any of these identities. And so I've lost YubiKeys, I've had laptops die, I've lost old keys. I'm sure you've lost GPG keychains and don't have those keys anymore. So I can't ever produce a proof that those contributions are mine. I claim it and people just have to trust me, but there's no way for me to prove that those contributions to the kernel or to whatever were actually me because I don't have that old data anymore. And that's why this provenance log, that's why I say I've been working on this for 20 years. It's like, how do I contribute anonymously and still at the future be able to prove to a prospective employer or an investor or something that, no, I really have been doing this for this long. And I can produce a cryptographic proof that that was me. I am a kernel developer. I am this, I am that, I am this, right? Without actually revealing what, you know, which one of those contributors I actually was. So anyway, that the, the key thing that we've innovated on that solves problems that nobody else has solved is this replication at scale thing using accumulators and, the, and these tiny proofs. Um, the best identity systems, digital identity systems in the world right now only go up to like, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand, a million identities. And Twitter has what, 200, 300 million active daily users, uh, 500 million tweets. What we are doing is the only system I think could, that could do it, right? We can issue revocable credentials at 10 million per second per CPU. And that was on like a four-year-old laptop. Um, and the revocation sets are so small and the decentralization is so great that it's the only thing that could easily go to the to global scale. Like we've done back of the napkin math and it's like of the 8 billion people on the planet, everybody could have a billion of these things. And the revocation data would be a fraction of what everybody else's is. You know, the, the best technology in the world are these things called uh, bit vector revocation sets. And, you know, if you gave a digital ID to everybody on the planet, it's something like 78 terabytes of data that everybody would have to have access to. And using our technique, it shrinks down to like three to five megabytes, or sorry, three to five gigabytes, something easily you could have on your phone, right? Every, everybody could have it on here, have a copy. So anyway, what are you gonna say, Kyle? Oh, well, so what I, what I was wondering is, um, it seems to go back to the Nevada DMV example. Um, so if I'm creating an identity and I have Nevada DMV vouch for that identity and sort of the purpose of doing this in the Twitter example, at least, and at least in that use case, is that if, if my uh, pseudo identity does something naughty on Twitter, that then the authorities can come with with all proper jurisprudence and yep. with a warrant, and then go to Twitter, who then can go to um, the Nevada DMV and get my identity. Yeah, well, Twitter um, doesn't do that. They just hand that that view uh, token thing, right? The verifiably encrypted thing. They hand it over to law enforcement, and it identifies where it came from. It says, oh, I came from Nevada DMV. So then they sure. go to the Nevada DMV. Yeah. yeah. So the thing here is yeah. it's important that Twitter gets out of the business of enforcing speech. That's really what the point is. Sure. So so in that case, um, these, uh, remind me the name that you're assigning the, the folks that are, uh, that are um, verifying identity, just so I can use the right terminology. Oh, the KYC mm -hmm. vendors. 
like know your so customer. So you're saying, hey, I would say, I would say, do you have a name for that you're applying to that, or can I just? No, so they're just okay, cool. they're just anybody who does a legal process sure. of identifying you. There's companies, okay, there's organizations. So. so I'll just I'll call them right now as acting as identity escrow. Um, and so let's say that because the reason I say that is because they are holding um, on to, just like any escrow agency, they're holding on to something that yeah. they have control over that by it sounds like you don't necessarily have control over um, completely for it to work, but also the like the Twitters of the world that would be using this, they can't see it at all. They just yeah. trust this third party, the um, and because they trust that third party, they, they know that that information is retrievable from that third party, though. That's the thing is that because it's in it's in their hands, it's under their escrow. So because of the, the reason I ask, that's why I'm asking about uh, revocation, because one property of this is that if I'm someone who's doing something naughty on Twitter and don't want to be identified and I'm using and I buy and have this level of verification through this third party, they do have the ability to unmask me. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering about, because they have that data. And so I'm wondering whether revocation in your case requires that that third party be also be trustworthy. And if there's some mechanism for that escrow agency, as it were, to then say, we have erased the link between your real identity and your pseudo identity. Yes. Yeah. So um, I think it's important to point out, again, getting back to game theory and incentives here, it's important to point out that the Twitters of the world get to choose which identity, um, you know, they get to choose which identity provider or, you know, KYC providers they trust. Okay. So if, you know, the CAB form has this problem, right? The certificate authority has this, a system has this problem. There have been state run telecom, not to pick on anyone particular, I won't identify them, but I think we all know who they are. State run telecom agencies that misissued uh, TLS certificates for well-known sites like Google, Facebook, whatever, so they can man in the middle of their citizens. Okay. So Twitter would want to carefully vet these uh, KYC vendors. And um, it's in their control to decide which ones they trust and which ones they don't trust. And that's their role in this. Um, and what, what's important here, so they, they get to choose which ones those they're going to trust, right? And they present the list to all of us and of all of us get to choose which one we're going to use. The, the revocation piece, you know, link, keeping things unlinked, um, uh, you know, I'm trying to, I could get into the technicals on this one, but what you're yeah, really doing let's is- Let's trust that you're doing it correctly. I'm just wondering how, from a high level, it would work. Um, assuming, like, let's well, assume that all the all of the math behind it enforces this, but like, if I'm a person that wants to revoke my identity, do I need to trust my escrow agency no, to say, no, 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 yep, I deleted it? Or no, if don't. not, then how can I, then do I have the ability to gain that, say I did something intentionally illegal and then whoop, revoke my identity, for instance, um, before the hammer comes down? Yeah, so you got to remember that like there's several, several things here. So the KYC vendor just verifies who I am and gives me verified data as, you know, my identity as authentic data, okay? using the authentic data, I then 
prove to Twitter that I have been KYC'd um, and I can create as many accounts as I want. Now there's game theory here too. Like, you know, maybe we don't want people making a hundred thousand accounts that are heartbeat accounts, right? Cause then what's the difference between those and a bot account? So, you know, maybe you can have an account. The first one's free, the first five are free. Um, you know, the next five cost you $50 each, right? And the next five cost you $5,000 each, you know, like there could be graduated costs to having lots of these identities. Um, but each one of those, if they get the heartbeat, um, are, li are linked to a cryptographic proof that you have in KYC, but not necessarily the KYC credential itself. So Twitter doesn't link them. And more importantly, the KYC vendor can't link them either. They're fully under my control, but to use an account and to post as that on Twitter, okay, I have to give them a piece of data that will then, uh, you know, reveal my identity, will, will reveal my KYC data at the vendor, okay? And the way I've always seen this is it's like, these, these KYC companies are actually going to be, uh, I think they're probably gonna be fiduciaries, really, um, where they are there to act in, my best interest, but then they are also bound by the law to support law enforcement and all that stuff. So there's sort of the give and take, kind of like your attorney, right? I think this might be a thing that a lot of lawyers get into because you have attorney client privilege and then, but that can be broken under certain circumstances, right? So um, we have existing systems for this. I think it's just important to point out that I don't have to, like my KYC vendor who gave me my KYC data as authentic data doesn't know about all of my accounts that I created associated with that data. And Twitter doesn't know all the different accounts either because the verifiably encrypted data I give them is presented differently each time. So it's a technique and proof presentation where you, you, they're unlinkable across time and space. So I can interact with the service multiple times using the same authentic data as the backing for my access to it, but Twitter itself cannot link my presentations so they, they can't be like, oh, that's that person. That's the same person. That's the same person. That's the same person. Um, and so Twitter doesn't know that those accounts are linked, um, which actually would be interesting. How would you enforce heartbeats, um, keeping people from having 100,000 heartbeats? I'm sure there's, we can, oh, I know how it does. I know. So one of our other inventions is a limited use credential. So it's like a punch card. It, it's a thing you can get and only use it so many times. And you can do it in a way that um, is not linkable. You can just prove you still have punches. So, and then if you've used it five times, then it's invalid anymore, right? And so there's some game theory here we can do or some technology we can do that would limit the number of accounts someone could create with a heartbeat. It's not fully baked. I mean, well, it's 99% baked. There's a couple of corner cases we'd have to work out. But um, like I said, this is a narrow use case of what we call the authentic data economy. The, this is how we're going to do authentication, I think, for everything uh, in the future. It, it reverses the arrow in e-commerce. And what I mean by that is we're no longer sending data to code. Like I'm never giving my data to Amazon. Instead, Amazon sends me verifiable computations that I execute privately over my private data to produce cryptographic proofs. So sharing is obsolete. That's the coolest part here. We've scaled the issuance of authentic data and revocation of that authentic data to uh, magnitudes, you know, eight, 10 magnitudes bigger than anything that exists in the world today. And that allows us to then touch basically every part of the world, every part of the, the economy. We can do NFTs without a cryptocurrency. 
essentially. This automates third-party licensing of intellectual property. This makes every person who takes a photo or records audio or films a movie or whatever into a media company because you immediately anchor your, you know, create a provenance log for every photo, every video, everything and anchor it. The, the abstraction of anchoring using an accumulator, turning the transaction throughput rate of say Bitcoin to infinite for all of this um, means that anchoring is basically free because we can amortize billions and billions and billions of state updates into a single 80 bytes in a single Bitcoin transaction. So um, asserting your, your rights over your digital data and your digital life and everything like that becomes a ubiquitous thing that, that is free. And that's our distinction between say what the web three people are trying to do right now is in my opinion, they're building new silos. These are new Googles, new Facebooks, right? Data portability, portability of data linked to a certain cryptocurrency or a blockchain is zero. Like I can't start on one and move to another one. Or if I can, I have to use some cross-chain atomic swap or something. And, you know, I just don't like the idea that I'm going to have to pay fees for every little thing. And I don't believe that they're going to get scalability up high enough to make those fees cheap enough that it's essentially free for everybody. And so we took a totally different approach. Um, I mean, my time at Hyperledger taught me that blockchains are horribly inefficient for anything on layer one. And I, I think that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies and other black blockchains make sense for money where you need to have double spend and distributed consensus. But I think everything else where you don't need double spend protection, where you have positive assertion of digital rights, um, you can do off chain. And you, we're essentially an infinite layer two solution if you want to use blockchain speed. You can do it off chain using a provenance log anchored in Bitcoin or Ethereum or wherever, right? And now what we're doing is just playing around with, well, what can we do with this? And we have vertical, we're, we're building out, um, well, we're, we're an open source company and we're trying to, like, we're very inspired by GitLab. So, you know, Git was open source and everything. And then they built an enterprise solution around it that they sell. And so that's what we're doing too. We're just showing the world how to think about authenticity, how to manage their own authenticity and identity and all that stuff. And then we're going to be building out verticals for different industries. You know, we're looking at financial services right now because one of the cool things about this is it automates regulation compliance, financial and privacy regulation, because companies don't have to collect any personal information anymore. It's like, I don't need to know who you are. I just need to know that there is a company that knows who you are. So if I ever need to work with law enforcement or there's an audit regulatory action or whatever, I'm a good, you know, as a, comp a, com a company, I'm a good citizen and can participate. Right. Um, so anyway, th this whole thing about Twitter is really interesting. I wrote the blog post just trying to change the conversation. I felt like people were missing it. Like we now have tools that radically change the discussion. And maybe what I said here isn't the right way to go about it on Twitter. I think it is. I personally do. And I would love the challenge. Elon, I would love the challenge. Call me. Um, uh, well, at least you started the conversation. <laughs> yeah, I just want this to be, I mean, we're doing our best to make this uh, well-known, right? Like I said, we just came out of stealth like a couple of weeks ago. We've open sourced a whole bunch of our libraries. We're going to open source even more over the coming weeks. We're going to start doing some demos here. Um, and we're gonna stand up an API so everybody can play with it. And yeah, just look for that. I'm hoping to come on Floss Weekly 
and uh, and point everybody at all the repos and stuff like that. You know, we had oh one last thing. I I'm supposed to say one last thing. Supposed to. Uh, the, the, because it was in my list of to dos for this. Oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, we did. <laughs> we did open source about four or five months ago a new API security approach. It's called Oberon, and it's now out in the wild. There are companies using it to secure their API. It uses this kind of technology. Um, it doesn't require the provenance logs, but it does use the, the presentation of, of credentials and stuff and the set proofs. It is a substantial upgrade to API security. Um, from what is, exists in the world. And there's an obvious migration path from say like OpenID or whatever. Um, essentially what it is is like companies who issue, well, we're switching to a capability token system. So instead of using a username and password, you can hand out capabilities. And it uses a technique, a cryptographic blinding technique so that on the issuance, the holders have to commit to blinding. So like a fingerprint or password or whatever. So it's, low, it's client side multi-factor um, without using authenticator apps or text messages or anything like that. And like servers that verify these tokens only have public keys. So even if they're taken over or hacked, they can't be co coerced into misissuing capabilities. Um, and the issuance can be done using a distributed or decentralized signature, you know, multi-signature system. So an attacker would have to compromise, you know, a majority or whatever the threshold is of issuing servers, which can be located all around the world and isolated from each other and all that stuff. Um, they would have to take over a bunch of servers to misissue credentials. And, and, and it's privacy preserving. What happens now is instead of telling the service who I am, it just tells them that I have a valid token to access it. And it's presented in, you know, in an anonymous way so that I'm not linkable across interactions and stuff like that. So. Just to point out that we are truly an open source company. We, it is a substantial increase in security for APIs and we just gave it away. And at the last Internet Identity Workshop just a couple of weeks ago, some companies came and presented their rollout of it and their adoption of it and to great fanfare. So look for more from us coming soon. Cool. That's it. Thanks you guys for listening awesome. to me for an hour. <laughs> Yeah, any further questions we have to save for next time so I can still have time to edit tonight. Uh. Yeah, I do want to thank on air Kyle for the wonderful laptops I've been using for a long time. Thank you, Kyle. Yeah, and thank Todd awesome. for me. Oh, we'll do Neil. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm a fan. I'm a purism fan. Totally am. Yeah, everyone should be. Somebody's got to do that work. <laughs> so um, yeah, well, thank you both for being here. I, you know, thank you especially to Kyle for, for coming in at the Pretty, pretty much the last minute there and uh, and asking some really good questions that I probably would not have thought of. So yeah, I really appreciate it. And yeah, until until next time, I'm sure we'll <laughs> talk about this stuff again because it, it seems to keep coming up. Yeah. But yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens with Twitter. I'm kind of I'm extra anxious now. To see. Everybody knock on Elon's door. Everybody at Elon Musk on Twitter and be like, you should talk to Dave. And fix all his problems, <laughs> all of his bot problems. <laughs> <laughs> and all of his political well i don't know <laughs> i thought the challenge i you know if this if if nothing ever comes with this i want to build a, a twitter clone 
just to demo it, just because you I don't use challenge. Twitter, though, do you? Do you use Twitter? I don't use any social media at all. <laughs> That's what that somehow makes this whole conversation even kind of funny. Well, because it was never it never adhered to my my uh, rules enough. for interaction, right? Like I have rules for relationships with other people and computer systems and, and Twitter and, not and all of the social media systems were like, ah, yeah, we don't recognize your rules at all. We don't even come close to them. And so this is my chance. In fact, so why not just Mastodon? It's federated identity. Server. It, it, nah, no, nope. it doesn't work either. All right, nope. well, someday. Nope. It needs to be authentic, authentic data stuff. But I got really excited about the blue sky stuff but then they're going federated identity. That's not real identity. It's not, no, it doesn't have the right properties for me, for me. So, but we do have a Twitter account now for the company. And so I'll be <laughs> tweeting through that, believe it or not. That's funny. Yeah. Okay. Well, until you launch uh, Daver. Well, thanks y'all. I think, uh, I think that about wraps it up. Bye.